as has been already mentioned, we're beginning a new series. Jesus, a couple thousand years ago, floored his listeners as he began this sermon, this message, this talk on the side of a mountain. He talked about some things that are still very relevant for us today. Some of the subjects he covered were such as these. He recovered happiness, which we're going to look at this morning. He talked about influence. He talked about relationships. He talked about sex. He talked about divorce. He talked about enemies, hypocrisy, worry, and so much more that points us to what life could look for us. He gives us some ideas, some concepts that are, that are really impacting us even today. And no matter where you are at, no matter what you're thinking about, if you could incorporate, if I could incorporate more of these concepts into my life, if I could lean more into them, uh, it would continue to transform and change my life for the better. You know, as we go through uh, five weeks before Christmas, and then we'll get back into it in January, we're going to see that Jesus can make life better, and he makes us better at life. Let that sink into your heart a little bit. Jesus can make life better. Now, we didn't say perfect. We didn't say put all together in a neat, tidy package but he can make life better. And he can make you and I, as we lean into his way of living, because we have a relationship with him, he can make us better at life. Stop and think about something that uh, maybe you're uh, dealing with even right now, you're wrestling with right now. Maybe something you're coming out of the other side, or maybe something on the horizon. Just imagine, just imagine if you could navigate those uh, waters of concern, maybe heartbreak, or maybe even excitement, joy, if you could do that just a little bit better, living life a little bit better. So Jesus starts this message, and he starts this on the side of a mountain, and uh, as he wraps things up, he tells a, a story that uh, some of us are familiar with, and as he wraps that up, this is what he says, and these words are about the whole message he just gave, the whole sermon on the mount, the whole talk on the mount. He says this, these words I speak to you are not incidental additions to your life. They're not homeowner improvements to your standard of living. They are foundational words, words to build a life on. For if you work these words into your life, you are like a smart carpenter who built his house on a solid rock. So these just aren't fancy words for Bible studies, for trivial pursuit. They're just not words that help you live a little bit better. They're, they're words that can change our lives. And I don't know about you, but I still have some changing. I still have some growing to do. So when I read that, 
When I hear Jesus saying that, I say, I need that. I need that a part of me. I, I need that to continue to be a process in my life. Now, as I said earlier, we're going to be looking at Matthew, and uh, basically it's Matthew 5 through 7. We're not going to be covering that, obviously, all right now. We're just going to look at a few verses today. Uh, if you want, you can follow along in one of the rack Bibles as we, look at the, as we use the NIV. That's page 677. If you don't have your own personal copy of a Bible, uh, please feel free to take that as a gift from Seneca Community Church. We want you to have that. Also, we strongly encourage uh, the version, which is an electronic app that gives you the Bible, and you can put that right on your phone or your iPad or wherever, and you can have it anywhere you go. And um, just, just really a valuable tool. So we'll be beginning in verse 1. You can kind of hold your finger there as, as we go along. So Matthew 5, verse 1, page 677. Uh, we see this starting to unfold. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Now, this is significant. Uh, there are, there's going to be his inner circle disciples are with him, but then there's other people around the edge. And where he was speaking, if the wind was blowing the right way, you didn't need an amplifier system. The wind would take your voice. And uh, they would be able to hear. So he's sitting down, getting ready to, to share these things. And he's really sharing them with his inner circle. That might have been 12, might have been a little bit more. But then there's a multitude, there's a crowd around him. And they're kind of like eavesdropping in on what he's having to say. And because of the location, because of the, the, um, the environment, he's able to speak it and they're able to, to be able to hear. So he sits down and his disciples came to him. And he begins to teach them. And he begins to unfold all of this. Now, I'm going to stop right here and talk a little bit about uh, speeches, famous speeches. Uh, when you think of some of the, the famous, life-changing speeches you've either heard of or heard, uh, what, what do you think of? What would be the, the top ten speeches, presentations, declarations, whatever? What, what would be some of those things you think about? Okay, Martin Luther King, Gettysburg Address, what else? Declaration of Independence, President Kennedy, you know, announces the space race and all of that. What else? Pardon? Message from the moon, Churchill, never give up, 9-11 speech, when... Uh, President Reagan was uh, in Berlin and said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall, right? You have all these, these speeches. Someone already mentioned the Gettysburg Address less than 300 miles from here. Uh, you may not realize this. I didn't realize this, but that actual speech that uh, President Lincoln gave was not the, the keynote address there. There was actually a gentleman I'd never heard of, Edward Everett who was a master orator, and he was there, and he gave this two-hour speech, and everybody couldn't wait to hear him. He had memorized it and, and spoke for two hours. And then at the tail end, Abraham Lincoln had written some things down on a piece of paper, and he gets up and speaks. 
He was so quick that there's not even any real pictures of him. This is thought to be Abraham Lincoln at the Gettysburg Address. Uh, there are no pictures of him because he was up and down, uh, you know, in minutes. Let's see, uh, it was uh, 272 words, 10 sentences. And we still remember it today. We go to events. And, and we have this in our mind, but this is not a photograph. We have this kind of scene in our mind, but it was so quick, and it still continues to impact us today. Memorial Day celebrations, they always read that. If you're up in the Waterloo when they're celebrating it, you actually see Abraham Lincoln. It's amazing. And he's walking around. Something that, that was not supposed to be this grand speech, this, this holding on to for for years and years and years, has become one. Now, when I, when I think of speeches like this, I also think of movies, of course, and uh, I think of some, some speeches that kind of just grab the, the, the attender's attention. Of course, uh, when I was thinking about this and looking online, uh, this one came into play. They fought, and they fought. A speech that captured the hearts of an army. And I looked up, and a lot of what uh, was projected there, he actually said on that battlefield. Not all of it, not the same way, but he did, he did say that. Then I, I think back to the middle 90s, and uh, this uh, movie caught my eye. Major. Sir. Good morning. Good morning. In less than an hour, aircraft from here will join others from around the world. And you will be launching the largest aerial battle in the history of mankind. Mankind, that... Words should have new meaning for all of us today. We can't be consumed by our petty differences anymore. 
We will be united in our common interest. Perhaps it's fate that today is the 4th of July. And you will once again be fighting for our freedom. Not from tyranny, oppression, or persecution. But from annihilation. We're fighting for our right to live. To exist. And should we win the day, the 4th of July will no longer be known as an American holiday, but as the day when the world declared in one voice, we will not go quietly into the night, we will not vanish without a fight. We're going to live on. We're going to survive. Today, we celebrate our Independence Day. Gives me a little tear in my eye. <laughs> and some of you know the rest of the story. Those of you who don't know, shame on you. Will Smith saves the planet again. Uh, and he does it. It's, uh, it's amazing. So um, that happens. But, uh, you know, there are, there are speeches. There are make-believe speeches. There are real speeches. And they capture our hearts. They make us think. And the Sermon on the Mount we walk through. I could give you little one-liners, and you, you, would, you would recognize those. Even if you didn't grow up in an environment where you had heard about the Sermon on the Mount, you'd heard about Jesus, you'd still recognize, like, turn the other cheek. You, you know that. Judge not, lest thee be judged. You, you know those things. Because that speech that Jesus gave, that talk that Jesus gave, Change the world, and it continues to change the world as you and I lean in, as you and I actually integrate those concepts into our life. When Jesus' message on the mountain was all over, this is the response. When Jesus concluded his address, the crowd burst into applause. They had never heard teaching like this. It was apparent that he was living everything he was saying, quite a contrast to their religion teachers. This was the best teaching they had ever heard. And if you're a history buff, you can actually see how Jesus' movement changed the world and continues to change the world. So when Jesus started off his address, I think he had an idea that there was unbelievable power in his words. He starts off with this idea, what will make you happy? Now, if you were to do a search and just type in the words, how can I be? You would see these options, and number three that would come up is, how can I be happy? Google does this thing where they try to anticipate. Some people type in, how can I be sure? I don't know sure about what, but they're asking that question. How can I be rich? Okay, number two. But then there's, how can I be happy? How can I be happy? And Jesus addresses this in this idea of happiness is, is, in a sense, timeless. People 2,000 years ago, it caught their attention. They, they, they wanted to know what makes 
a person? What makes people truly happy? How does that work? And the beginning of these statements start off with this word called be blessed or blessed. And to be blessed or to be blessed is to set up to receive and experience God's mercy and favor to have your world enlarged. And a lot of us have to come to the first obstacle to this idea is that some of us think that to lean into what Jesus has to say actually limits life. But it's exactly the opposite. When you and I lean in, when you and I integrate, align our lives with what Jesus taught, our world is enlarged, not shrunk. It's so much more than a list of do's and don'ts. It changes us from the inside, and it, and it sets us up. It sets us up for new avenues of life, new ways of living, which bring a fuller life into our experience rather than, than shrinking it. So we get set up. The first time I can remember actually hearing this word set up and actually thinking about it, it was when I was in junior high. And, uh, you know, I was always tall going through elementary school. I slowed down when I got into high school, but I was always tall. And a part of being tall meant that my coordination wasn't so good. So when it came to some sports and some activities, I really wasn't good. But it was in seventh grade that I discovered my height had an advantage when I played volleyball in gym. And all of a sudden I heard this concept, set me up, set me up. And I'd get on the net right in the net, and they would set me up. The ball wouldn't go just right over the net when it was received. They would drew it around, and all of a sudden, it end up in my location, and I'd go up, and I could actually get slam it, spike it on the other side. And all the time then, from then on, I heard this, I'd always go, set me up, set me up, set me up, set me up, because I wanted to be set up so I could score, so I could, you know, ram that ball down someone's throat on the other side. <laughs> I wanted to be set up. As we go through these areas of be blessed, they're designed to set us up for a larger experience. It doesn't mean a perfect experience. It doesn't mean all your problems go away, but it enlarges life rather than shrinks it. We get to experience God's mercy, God's grace, God's favor in our lives. And it's not because we're earning it by doing these things. It's because there are some common sense things. If we navigate this way, life just goes smoother. And Jesus wants to set us up to the best life possible for wherever we're at in life. Back way in the Older Testament, there was an individual who cried out this, this prayer, make me happy, set me up. Some of you may be familiar with this. There was a book written on it called The Prayer of Jabez. Not much about Jabez, but it says this, Jabez cried out to the God of Israel, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my territory. Let your hand be with me and keep me from harm so that I will be free from pain. And the surprise is, and God granted his request. This idea of being set up. 
our territory, not just, uh, in a sense, prosperity, materialism, but our life is fuller. We want God to set us up and enlarge our territory. Sometimes on church leadership discussions, we talk about having a larger influence in our community. We want to be set up for a larger influence, not so that uh, there's some notoriety there, but more so that, so that we can be involved in more people's lives. So we pray, Lord, enlarge our influence, enlarge our territory, so we have more opportunities to point people to you. Now, what's amazing in this message, in this talk, is that at first glance, what Jesus presents as these blessings or to be set up uh, seem to be negative. They seem to take life away. They seem to be like, no, I wouldn't want that. But as we walk through them, we're going to actually see that it's in a sense almost upside down, that when you and I engage in these concepts, when they are a part of who we are, as they grow as a part of you, it actually enlarges our influences, it makes us happy, we will say we are blessed. This Sunday we're just going to cover the first four, and the first one, as many of us are familiar with, beginning in verse three there, is poor in spirit. Jesus has all these people sitting around, he's giving this great sermon, and it starts off with poor in spirit, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. First of all, we go, what even does that mean, the kingdom of heaven? It means that you and I get to live as kingdom dwellers. In a sense, this chapter of life is the beginning of that, and then someday when we meet Jesus face to face, it just continues on. So blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now what does it mean to be poor in spirit? The reality is most of us don't want to be poor in anything. We don't want to be poor in anything. We don't want to, that, that sounds like we don't have enough resources to do what we want to do. I'm poor in that area. I, I, can't, I can't facilitate that activity. Sometimes we want to do something financially, and we say, I'm not poor in spirit. I'm poor in finances, so I can't do that. So it sounds like it limits us. But, but that's not the case. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that uh, you're, you're getting limited, but we're going to see that it means something else. And what's interesting is this idea of being poor in spirit uh, is demonstrated by this gentleman. This gentleman lives in Singapore. His name is Philip Naiji Chi Tai, <laughs> and he's the richest man in Singapore. He has $8.7 billion. And if you were going to talk with him, you would think he has it made. But it's interesting that he says, I've discovered that the missing piece in my life, even with $8.7 billion, was Jesus in my life. And you go, well, let me, let me try that. I'll, I'll take $8.7 billion for 10 years and see how bad I feel. And the same, wow, it's easy for him to say that, but he does say it. He says that that Jesus is what he needs. So as he looks at his life, he goes, I am poor in spirit. I'm not poor in anything else, but I'm poor in spirit, realizing that I don't have enough spiritual something, 
so that I'm missing it. I, my life may be filled, but it's still empty. And he realizes and he comes to terms with it. He goes, I am poor in spirit, and because I'm poor in spirit, I'm blessed. When you and I get to the place and realize that we can't, in a sense, afford to write the spiritual check that we need to write to be right with God, all of a sudden we realize we're poor in spirit. And for each one of us in this room who has said yes to Jesus, there came a moment where you all of a sudden said, I am poor in spirit. I can't write the check. I need somebody else to write the check. And that was the beginning for you of a change of life. I'm poor in spirit. I cannot write the check that I need to have written so that I can be right with God. So this man, this billionaire in Singapore, realizes that, that it doesn't have anything to do with his financial backing. He says, I had to come to the place where I was poor in spirit to realize that. Now, some of us in this room who have even said yes to Christ uh, go back and forth. Yes, I'm poor in spirit, and then we drift from that. And we think we can, in a sense, write the check for happiness in life. But Jesus is saying, you never can write the check. You're always, when you look inward and see your resources, you always are poor in spirit. And when you're poor in spirit, when you're not filled with yourself, there's room, in a sense, for God to fill your life. So in a sense, we need to always live in the mindset of not gloom, but we need to live in the mindset of delight that I am poor in spirit, that I cannot write that check. No matter how much now Jesus, after saying yes to him, does change my life, no matter how much better I'm at living, I still can't write that check. And then there might be some in here that have never said yes to Jesus and have never had him write that check. You're still, in a sense, full of stuff. Sometimes we're full of ourselves. Sometimes we're full of our resources. Again, the billionaire says, no, $8.7 billion being filled, that's pretty full, doesn't, doesn't write that check. And we have to understand that blessed are the poor in spirit because then they get to be a kingdom liver. Not just in eternity, but here and now. They get to go on that journey, go on that path. Jesus tells a story of, of a, I, I would say, both God-fearing people, religious people, but one is not poor in spirit, and the other is. Turned over to Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 12, actually 9 through 14, it says, to some who were confident in their own righteousness, their own ability to be right with God and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this story. And let me in you on a secret. Those of us who have been Christ followers for a little while, there's this danger, there's this subtle danger that slides in that we're confident in our own righteousness. We would never say that out loud, but the way it shows up is the way we look at other people. We, we look at other people in a certain way that says, yeah, I've, I've kind of got it all together. I wouldn't say i got it all together, but I've got it better than that person. And we become confident in our own righteousness. And then the blessing, the, the being set up, diminishes goes on, two men went up to the temple to pray. That's a good thing. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Two extremes. One person, 
the religious wow, wow, wow person, and the other person, ooh, he shouldn't even be in the temple to be praying. He's, he's worthless. Both go up. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. I'm a percentage giver. I give 10%. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. And he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus continues on. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God, right with God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This idea of blessed are the poor in spirit, the tax collector, poor in spirit, the Pharisee who knew all the answers, not poor in spirit. And that doesn't mean you have a downcast composure all the time. It means you might even have a celebratory composure because you are celebrating that you are poor in spirit. You don't have the resources to write the check yourself, and Jesus wrote the check for you, and you're always mindful of that. It's a breath of fresh air when I come across someone who that is in the forefront of their mind, that Jesus wrote the check for them, that they were poor in spirit, and they get to experience that. And there's, there's people that have, been, have known the Lord not just a couple weeks, not a couple months, not a couple years, decades, and they're still, in a sense, poor in spirit. I love when I come across somebody like that because I cannot, sometimes I'm not naturally that way. But when you and I are poor in spirit, we get to live the kingdom life in this chapter. I love the way Eugene Peterson translates this. He says this, You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. Do you live a life, not where you set yourself up for failure, but do you live a life where you realize that in reality, you're always at the end of your rope? Some of us have false confidence in things in our life. Maybe it's our bank account, maybe it's our job, maybe it's our ability, maybe it's our physical life, whatever it is. Maybe it's our relationships, and and we have confidence in those things, so we don't ever think we're at the end of our rope. So there's more of us than God and his rule, his guidance. Uh, That idea of rule sometimes in the New Testament actually is the word umpire. That you let God umpire your life. Make the calls. He's the referee. He, he's the, the, he looks at your life and sees where it fits. Was that out of bounds or inbounds or whatever? So his rule, it's not like having rules. He's just making the call, and he's making the call again to set you and me up for a better life. I don't like being at the end of my rope. Again, it's not living carelessly. It's not being sloppy with your life. So you're always living in desperation because you haven't been wise with your life. But I always like reminding myself, today could be the day. Today could be my last day. I don't know. Do I live at the end of my rope? Yes, I have some resources, some abilities, some whatever, good relate, all whatever you want to say. But I, I can't lean on them like they're my rope. 
My rope has to be God, Jesus Christ, His Spirit working in my life. So Jesus is saying, the person who's not conscious of that doesn't get to, in a sense, embrace the kingdom life. But you're blessed when you realize you're at the end of your rope. When was the last time? Some of us may feel, I feel like at the end of a rope my net right now. All right, blessing me. Yeah, right. But some of us haven't felt like we're at the end of our rope in a long time. Somewhere along the line, we said yes to Jesus, and now we trust more in our performance than his work in our life. What a sad place to live. Sometimes we live in such a way that, uh, in a sense, God doesn't need to show up for life to go well. At least that's what we think. That's what life looks like. No, I, I want to I live a life where I'm very conscious of God showing up all the time. I don't want to live an isolated life. So I want to be conscious that I'm at the end of my rope, and he's my rope. God can only pour into those who are not too full of themselves. Probably don't need to explain that statement. So, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Are you poor in spirit? Not downcast, not depressed, but poor in spirit, you realize that you're at the end of your rope, and the only one that can bail you out is an active, present, dynamic God in your everyday life. Then there's those who mourn. Jesus goes on. Oh, boy, it gets even worse. Those are sad. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. They will be comforted. To mourn, you must be relationally connected. You have a connection. Uh, You're relationally connected to other people. You're relationally, in a sense, this may sound a little odd, connected to yourself. We've talked about this in recent weeks, that you know who you are, and you're connected to that. And then, obviously, you're connected to God. So the starting point is relationship. It's connection. And when you mourn, there can be a sadness because you're relationally connected. Uh, you look at the world, you look at yourself, and, and you take that, that poor in spirit and you look at your life and you see the moments of, of sadness. But again, you know where to turn. Um, we're not going to take time and, and look at all of this, but uh, you can do this on your own. In John chapter 11, we have the story of Jesus and him being what seems at first being late to save one of his closest friends. He's late. He doesn't get there in time. The friend dies and has been buried for a couple days. And when Jesus arrives, Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And because of his brokenness, because of his sadness and the broken world and what happened to Lazarus, all of a sudden it gives an opportunity for blessing in his life because the rest of the story is that uh, he comes back, that, that God raises him from the dead and shows the power that God has in somebody's life. But that relationship, that mourning, opened the opportunity for that experience. 
Sometimes the sadness in our life, the heartbreak in our lives, the mourning in our lives, we're never going to say they're fun, they're never, but, it, but it opens the dimension for us to be comforted by God. And there's some things that only He can comfort in our lives. It doesn't mean you live in isolation, but it means that there's not just people, but there, there's God that comes alongside you and you find that His comfort can be sufficient. Can be. And you find that in sadness. Some of the greatest sadnesses in my life have been some of the greatest teaching times where I found the comfort of God. And I would never ask for those opportunities, ask for those moments, ask for those tragedies, but on the other side of those tragedies, I found that God does comfort. And he can. He can. Also, there's this idea of connection when it comes to looking at the greater world. We, we mourn at the things we see going on in our world. And it causes us to look to God, to, to, to heal and, and care for our heart. Because there's some mornings in our greater world that are just not going away. And there's no good answer. There's no easy answer. There's no, here are the three steps and that will fix that problem. It just kind of seems to hang out there. Yet we can find that we can lean in and find the comfort of God and the blessing. And again, I would never ask for this, but there are times where I found that the comfort of God is sufficient. And if I didn't mourn, I would never have found out or experienced those moments. Also, there's times where I have to mourn in my own brokenness, knowing myself in relationship with that. I am a jerk. I'm a sinner. I can be selfish like the best of them out there. And, and I have to mourn my proneness to wandering, to sin. Saying yes to Jesus didn't just wipe that dimension out of life. Something I have to live with. And there are regrets from the past. There's some things that I can make motion to kind of maybe fix it a little bit. And there's some things I can't fix. They're just there. So I get to lean in and find out that I can't write the check. And I can't be, cover, um, can't be comforted only through the power of Christ in my life. We share this verse often when we celebrate communion. And David is not a stranger to mourning for many reasons, and including the places where he misstepped in big, significant ways. And this is what David says, Count yourself lucky. How happy you must be. You get a fresh start. Your slates wiped clean. Count yourself lucky. God holds nothing against you, and you're holding nothing back from him. When I kept it all inside, my bones turned to dry, uh, bones, uh, bones turned to powder. My words became day-long groans. The pressure never let up. All the juices of my life dried up. Then I let it all out. I said, I will make a clean breast of my failures to God. Suddenly... The pressure was gone. My guilt dissolved. My sin disappeared. Doesn't mean the consequences, but the heaviness. He was mourning and now he is comforted. 
And all of us in this room have had those moments if we said yes to Christ where we have been comforted by him. And what a blessing to know I can't fix that, I can't undo that, I weigh heavy about it, I'm mourning over it, but God will forgive me. He'll dissolve my guilt. He won't hold it against me. And I don't know about you, but I sometimes in moments of despair can think of things that I did when I was in high school, maybe even a little more recent than that, and I still feel heavy over it. And then I turn to God and I find the blessing that when I mourn, I'm comforted by him. Doesn't seem like a real good prescription for happiness, but that's what Jesus is teaching. Blessed are those who mourn. There's also this concept called meek. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. I don't look at meek being a complementary characteristic. I don't like meek. I don't, I wouldn't, oh, there's Dave, he's very meek. Don't, don't like that. Please don't call me meek. But the idea of meek is so much larger here. It's so much greater. When Jesus talks about being meek, it's something powerful. When Jesus referred to meek in Jesus' day, that meant power under control. You were meek. You had the power to uh, rule the roost, if you will, to be in control, and you were meek. You chose not to exercise that. You, you, you had the power to sit in the number one chair, whether that was at work, whether that was at home, whether that was on the athletic field, wherever you are, whether that was in the conversation, you could, you could say things in such a way so you were the one that was number one. But blessed is the person who's meek, who, who says, I don't have to prove myself. First time as a young adult that I realized this was as a youth pastor, and I love to play street hockey and floor hockey. I was kind of good especially against junior high kids. And I would get that little puck, get that little tennis ball, and I'd be down uh, our side, and all of a sudden I realized it was time for a goal, and I could go right around those junior high kids, even the best of them, and boom, I'd get it in. Yeah, Dave's the hero. And all of a sudden one day it dawned on me, wait a minute, I'm here for the kids. I'm not here to, in a sense, Increase my value as a street hockey player with junior high kids. What is wrong with that? And I realized I needed to be meek. I needed to keep my power under control. I needed to take the second chair. You see, taking the second place instead of the first place wherever you can. That's not to be beating yourself. It's not to be the doormat. But where you can, you let somebody else shine. You're meek. I love in those, uh, usually they're like a Superman movie, and Clark Kent is Clark Kent, right? And he's doing his thing, and he bumps into some 
bully or some bully bumps into him and is kind of handling him. And it's amazing to watch Superman kind of like hold back his power. And the guy doesn't know who he's messing with. Doesn't know. And he's meek. And in Superman's case, he doesn't exercise. I remember being in, June, in actually high school, and I've told you about my buddy, Vinny Marini. And uh, he worked on the farm. He could do one-arm pull-ups. He was like super huge and stocky, and, but he wasn't really like running in the popular circles. And my, my next-door uh, locker mate was Rusty Spencer, and I was stuck with him from middle school to high school. He was right next to me, and Vin would come over and talk to me. And one day, Vin was talking to me, and Rusty was acting like Rusty and kind of like brushed against Vinny, and, and it caused Rusty to spill his own very fine grape juice on himself. And so he you know, flipped off on, uh, on Vinny and started kind of like getting in his face. And all Vinny did was just put his hand on his shoulder and push him slowly into the blocker. And all of a sudden you saw all the blood go out of, of Rusty Spencer because he realized that Vinny could like crush him in a second. And he never knew about that because Vinny was always meek. He had all this power that he never kind of revealed. Do you have a lot of those things, or do you always, or do I always have to be in the first chair? You take time and look and see how Jesus washes the disciples' feet. You could take a look at how Jesus interacts, uh, just as Paul talks about him, about how he took second chair when it meant coming to earth and leaving heaven. And we're not going to walk through all this, but you just see that in, in Philippians uh, 2, 6 through 11. And we see that this idea of meek, again, is this idea of power and strength under control. And Jesus is saying, when you are meek and have that under control, it demonstrates that you are secure it demonstrates that you're satisfied and you are content. What a gift to be secure, satisfied, and content. You're blessed. Every once in a while you bump into someone who financially is meek. You know they have lots of resources, but they don't flash it around. They take the second chair. And a person who can be meek in those areas finds out they're blessed. In Jesus' day and in our day today, if you got it, you got to flaunt it, right? That's not what Jesus says. If you want to be happy, you are meek. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are. No more, no less. That's meek. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. Lastly, really quickly here, Jesus talks about hunger and thirst. Blessed are those who are hungry and thirst for righteousness. That word righteousness is the idea of being right with God. Please, please don't look at that as being self-righteous. Don't express your righteousness by I'm better than everybody else. That, that's not meekness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for a right relationship with God, a growing right relationship with God, for they will be filled. Jesus said, if you're hungry and thirsty for God, you will have them. It's almost like as much as you can drink, as much as you can eat, you can keep going up to the buffet time and time and time again. 
And you won't be filled like with a stomach ache. You'll just be totally satisfied, hungry and thirsty. I love what Isaiah writes. He writes, all who are thirsty come to the water. Are you penniless? Come anyway. Buy and eat, because all of us really are penniless. Buy without money. Everything's free. Why do you spend your money on junk food, your hard-earned cash on cotton candy? Listen to me. Listen well. Eat only the best. Fill yourselves with only the finest. Pay attention. Come close now. Listen carefully to my life-giving, life-nourishing words. How to be happy. Four little lines, four little thoughts that transform us from the inside out. I said this earlier. Jesus will make life better and make us better at life if we will only listen and apply. Listen and apply. Both of those things working in tandem. So no matter where you're at, Jesus offers us a blessed life. He offers each one of us. And these are just four huge little components that keep us on the path, keep us moving in that direction. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just uh, thank you for the Sermon on the Mount. We're only a few statements into it, and the ramifications, the possibilities are unfathomable. Our lives can change and continue to grow. We can be blessed. We can know, we're, know that blessing, not just conceptually, but by experience as we walk with you. Father, if there's someone here this morning that has not said yes to you, has not come to the place where they realize they need to be poor in spirit, we ask in this moment they would see that they can't write that check on their own. And that even in this moment they would reach out to you and say, I'm spiritually bankrupt. I need you. I need you in my life. I Thank you that you gave your life for me. You died and rose again. And now I can have a relationship with God. I pray that that person would get to that place. And then, Lord, for the rest of us, that we would continue to lean in, lean in, and follow you and enjoy all that life has to offer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.